Well, Chairs, it's good to be here again and opening the word together. To, to state the obvious, this whole COVID-19 thing has really changed everything for us, hasn't it? Very little is as it used to be. And some of that's bad. Uh, we can easily list a range of things that, that we currently cannot do that we'd really like to do. But some of it has been good. Uh, I've been loving, for instance, the slower pace in our mornings and especially our afternoons, not having to run all over the place with after-school activities and picking up and dropping off, for instance. It's created a, a slower, healthier pace of life for us. The coronavirus has made us have to change the way we do things. I mean, even the fact that you're at home watching or, or listening to this rather than gathered together in the church building is an example of it. But I'm thinking particularly at the moment of the way uh, that we've had to change the way we do our teaching, our, our schooling. I'm able to see it from both sides. I experienced the reality of being a parent uh, supervising their child's learning at home and all the joys and trials of that. But I also get to see it from the side of, of a teacher as I see what my wife Maren does. See, Maren teaches uh, a foundation and year one class. She has responsibility for their learning, but she's not teaching them face-to-face at the moment. Instead, she's providing instruction and resources for the parents to carry out the work that she would do if she was with the students. But she's not with the kids, and so she's had to equip and empower the parents to do the teaching in her place. I think it's similar when it comes to the mission of Jesus in the world and and in the church. We're looking at the book of Acts at the moment, and it starts with these words. Luke is writing, and he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions by the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Now, Luke wrote two books that we have in our Bibles. He wrote the book of Acts, which is what we're studying at the moment. And he also wrote the gospel that bears his name. And what he says in this verse here is that Luke's gospel is just the account of all that Jesus began to do. And then Acts is the story of the continuation of that work. As as Jesus continues to do his work, but now he's doing it through the church. Just as Maren is not physically present with her class and so relies on the parents to continue her work of educating their kids, so Jesus is no longer physically present in the world and is relying on the church to continue his work. And we see all of this in our passage for today, which starts from verse 1 of Acts chapter 3. Let's read it together. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, At three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. 
He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's just pause there to take a moment to look at what's happened. Back in chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, descend on his followers. And then we read a description of their, of their life together. And then now we see Jesus continuing his work in the world through his Spirit-empowered followers. Peter and John, they're heading to the temple at the regular time of prayer. There's this sense that this is their, their usual practice. As they continue to meet together in the temple courts here, Peter and John are, are heading to one of those gatherings. And on their way, they see this man begging for money. This man, we know from the next chapter, is in his 40s, and he has been lame from birth. It's a testament to the compassion of others towards him that he has lived this long. He lives off the generosity of others as they um, give alms to him as part of their worship to God. Maybe he's kind of playing on their uh, sensitivity as they go or come from worship at the temple and figures this is the prime time to go begging from them. Now, Peter has to tell the man to, to look at him. He's probably just got his hands out to receive while, while his head is down, perhaps in shame that he's so useless and dependent and forced to live at the mercy of others. But Peter tells him to look at us. And we don't know then how he looked at Peter. Maybe he was hopeful to receive a generous gift. Maybe he was fearful of being mocked or abused. Maybe he was angry that they weren't just putting something into his hands and were actually asking something more of him. However he looked, I'm sure that he then deflated as Peter said to him that we've got no money to give to you. But then something amazing happens. Peter tells him in the name or in the authority or the power or, or the activity even of Jesus to walk. This man who has never done so, he tells to walk. And then having helped him to his feet, he doesn't just walk, but he leaps and he jumps. I mean, can, can you imagine? I mean, how, how does he even know how to walk? He's never done it. And yet for the first time in his life, He's doing it like an expert. Just as Jesus healed people through in his life on earth, so he continues to do so now through the church. And in response, this man praises God. And don't skim over this. I mean, Peter is the one who declared it. Peter is the one who helped him to his feet. But it is God who is praised. It's as Roderick said the other week, God's power is always his. It's, it's not ours. This man, as well as Peter himself, rightly recognized this. But before we move on from, from this part of the story, there's, there's one more thing I want us to note, which, which is a takeaway for us from this section. Look with me again at verse 6 and 7. Peter tells the man to walk, and then he takes him by the hand uh, and helps him up. And then we read that instantly, the man's feet and his ankles became strong. Now pay attention to the sequence of events here. At least as Luke tells it, 
the healing didn't actually take place until the man stood up. That means Peter was helping him to his feet before he knew if it had worked. That that means the man was trying to stand before he knew if anything in his legs had changed. It was as he stood that the miracle occurred. Here's what I think we can take from this. Faith isn't real faith until it's lived. Peter had to act on what he believed before he saw the evidence of it. The lame man had to act on what he hoped had happened before he knew for sure whether or not it had. Faith isn't real faith until it's lived, until it's expressed. See, it's easy for us to profess faith in God, but until it's lived out, until it's put to the test, especially in the context that would challenge it, the reality of that faith is unknown. Until then, it's just words. But if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, if we believe about God the things that we sing of him, for instance, then that has to be lived out. It has to make a difference to our lives. Or else, realistically, we need to question whether or not we do in fact have a faith at all. Well, let's continue the story. Picking up from verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this, and it's by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. Well, just as he had on the day of Pentecost, Peter seizes this opportunity to speak to the crowd that has gathered at the site of the miracle. And he starts by explaining what has happened, putting it into its larger context of the gospel. He recounts again the death and the resurrection of Jesus, of which they were all witnesses. And he declares that it is by faith in this Jesus that this man then has been healed and given his new life. And just as the man was praising God as he walked and and leapt, so too is Peter as he exalts Jesus before the people. He names Jesus to be God's chosen servant, the holy and righteous one, and the author or the source of life. These are unique titles and roles that are held only by Jesus. They are unparalleled and they are unequaled. It's not Peter and John who should get the glory, but always and only Jesus. Peter asked, why do you stare at us as if it's by our own godliness or power that we made this man walk? He knows how ridiculous that is. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who saves, who heals, who restores. It's Jesus' mission and work 
that Peter and John then just have the opportunity to continue and to join with him in. And thinking about the fact that it's Jesus' work gives depth to Peter's earlier question to the crowd of, why does this surprise you? If Jesus is continuing his work through us, why are we surprised that he does that work? A takeaway from this, I think, is that if, if faith is not really faith until it's lived out, then we should expect that as we live out our faith, God will work through it. As we live out our faith, God will work through it. I mean, it may not always seem like he does, and he certainly doesn't always do it in the way that, that we want or anticipate. Maybe his work is much more in us than through us. But believing God is who he says he is and living like it means that we can expect to see God work. We shouldn't be surprised when he does so. There was one Sunday years back when I was asked if I could pray after the service for a woman who had hurt her back just that that morning. And I spent the whole service thinking, man, she is just She's just done something stupid. She's just put herself in an awkward position. She's tinged it. And really, all she needs to go, all she needs to do is go to the osteo, go to the physio. I spent the service thinking about how I could diplomatically, as well as theologically, explain to her why God hasn't answered our prayers to fix her back uh, after the service. But then the last song we sang was full of these declarations about God about how he is our healer, about how he is great and powerful. And I was convicted. And so living out this faith that I had just sung, I prayed with this woman for her healing and blow me down if God didn't answer it. After prayer, her pain was gone and her movement was free again. Why was I surprised? If God is who I say he is, why was I surprised when he then acted and worked? When we live out our faith, God will work through it. So then Peter goes on to call for a response to Jesus and to the gospel from verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So what are we to do in response to this great and glorious Jesus, the the author of life who died and, and rose again? 
Peter says that we are to simply repent then and turn to God. Now, for us to turn to God implies that we're turning away from something else. In this passage, the call is to turn away from ignorance of who Jesus is and what he has done and instead to turn to him. Doing so then means recognizing Jesus as God's means of salvation and recognizing him as the rightful king over all things, even over us and our lives. And the result of us doing so will be having our sins absolutely wiped away. So there's no longer any record of them, that it is scrubbed clean. That we would experience times of refreshing as we live in his life and freedom, doing life in him and with him and through him. And to live waiting for his coming again, which will be the time when he restores all things to the way that they're meant to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And that promise can be summed up in the word, I think, blessing. Look at verse 26. God sent Jesus to bless you. How? By turning each of you from your wicked ways. If Jesus is the author of life, then he knows how it's meant to be lived. He knows how it is best and rightly lived. And so for us to stay in our wicked ways, for us to continue in sin, is actually to live a less than life. But Jesus came to offer life and life to the full, life in all of its abundance. This sounds like a blessing to me. He offers the blessing of living life as it was meant to be lived, to be lived in relationship with God, saved by him, walking with him, empowered by him, and partnering with him in his work and in his mission in our lives and in the world. And so what's, what's the takeaway from this? Well, Peter is clear. Repent then and turn to God. Recognize Jesus for who he is and trust in him to be your saviour from sin and the Lord of your life and experience the blessing of a life with God. Now, it should be said, I mean, God's blessing doesn't mean that life is easy and rosy. Look at how our passage for today ends in these first few verses of chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next, day, until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who grew, believed grew to about 5,000. This is the start of the persecution of the church as Peter and John are arrested. But Jesus was still continuing his work. The church continued to grow as faith was lived out, as God worked in their midst, and as people turned to him in faith and in trust. This is the ongoing work of Jesus in and through the church. And I guess the question as we close is simply, will you be a part of it? Will you be a part of the work that Jesus is continuing to do in our world? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for the witness of these early followers of you who by their lives and by their words challenge us, provoke us, encourage us and, and stir us on. 
And God, I pray that our faith in you would not just be something that we, we say with our lips, but it would be something that we live out with our lives. I pray that um, especially in those hard, challenging, testing times, that we would um, put flesh to the, to the things that we've said and the things that we've sung and that we would truly live out our faith and know then that it's real. I pray, God, that as we do so, that we would see you work, that those prayers we pray, be they for small things or for the big things, that we'd see your answer, that those times when we choose obedience to your word, even though it's uncomfortable or unpleasant or not what we would instinctively choose, that we would then see actually the outcome be good and positive, that we'd see you do more than we could have imagined through it. I pray, God, that we'd live out our faith and as we do so, see you work. And for us, God, that we'd repent and turn to you, that we'd leave, beside, leave behind our, our ways of sin and instead turn to you and look to you to, to live life how it was meant to be lived, to, to leave behind a less than life and instead have a fuller, full, fullest kind of life that we could have in you. May we be a part of your work in the world, God. May we not just um, rest on the factor of what you have done, but may we join with you in your mission, in your activity. And may then, God, as happens in this account, may you just be glorified and lifted up with more and more people turning to you. It's for this we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen.